Let's begin reading Romans 5, verse 1. I'm going to read down through verse 8. This thing still feels like it's going to fall off. Is it going to fall off, Eric? Am I okay? If it does, don't just act like that was supposed to happen. (laughs) Plan for it to fall off. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Lord, we come now to this teaching, preaching portion of your word where declare forth what your word says. We can declare these things with confidence and boldness because this is the very word of God. And so I ask now, Lord, for the gifting of your spirit to be able to teach and communicate these things clearly. Not only that, Lord, give us ears to hear and understand and hearts that are soft and ready to receive the word that we might follow you in this world. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing on in our study through Romans, and we come now this morning to verse 5. You remember that Pastor Jess in weeks past has looked in the first four verses and noted four benefits of justification by faith. Of course, those those benefits are, one, peace with God been justified by faith, you now have peace with God. No longer enemies, but friends. And then we are standing in grace. We live in the grace of God. And then we looked, I think it was two, times, or, uh, two weeks ago, that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Right? There, that confident expectation of future good of being in the presence of God. That's rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. And then last time we looked at how we rejoice, or this word rejoice, remember, is boast. We boast in our suffering. Now as we move into verse 5, we're looking at something that is continuing under that heading of rejoicing or boasting in our suffering. That's where we're continuing this morning. Paul is giving us reasons why we rejoice in suffering. And it's not that we're masochists, right? Like we enjoy pain or like, yes, it hurts and I don't like it. Now, that's not the way that we respond to suffering, but we realize that we respond to suffering this way. We can boast in it because of what God is doing in and through the suffering. Remember, those things that are being produced are endurance, character, and character now produces hope. You notice here, there's like this symbiotic relationship between the hope of glory that he talks about in verse 2 and the hope that comes from the character which is produced in suffering. It's, it's almost as if we grow in greater hope of glory through suffering. Right? It continues to be produced. As you suffer, you're hoping and boasting of glory. 
If you're not suffering, you're not really hoping of glory, right? There's nothing better than what you've already got. So suffering produces character. Character produces more hope, which causes me to boast and rejoice even more in the hope of glory that is coming to me. Now, we move into verses 5 through 8, and we're going to examine a couple of things this morning. We're going to look at what hope does. Then we're going to be reassured as to why we can have such a hope. And then finally, we're going to see what this love of God looks like. So verse 5, the first thing that Paul wants us to see and, and makes very clear is that hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not put us to shame. Uh, you remember again, and I already mentioned it once, but hope is that confident expectation of future good. There's something good in the future that's coming. I'm confident that I will receive that thing. Hope is really one of the defining themes of this entire passage, right? We've already touched on it twice. He's mentioned it earlier, right? Uh, The hope of glory. And now he's mentioning again, this hope that does not put us to shame. That same hope of glory is what will not allow us to be put to shame. So we have hope. But we need to think about this, this word shame a little bit. The idea behind shame is disgrace or disappointment. I will not be disappointed. It carries with the, the idea of being put down, right? You can think about if we use just shame in our modern context, right? Uh, it, it's, it's an idea of putting someone in their place. That's the idea, like, uh, not to get too, too uh, cultural, but cancel culture is largely about shame, shame you for uh, put you down uh disgrace you because of what you've expressed or something that you you agree with but what hope is doing is keeping those who love the confident expectation of future good right you're like i hope in glory i love the glory that's coming to me and it's keeping you from being disappointed by that hope right as a christian your hope will not one day prove to just be a mirage, right? The, the, you're out in the desert and you think you see water in the distance and you get there and it's not really there. That's not biblical hope. And, and so this hope of the glory of God will not prove to be that way. You won't get to that point and be disappointed. Oh, it wasn't what I thought it would be. In other words, this hope we have because of our being justified by faith will not fail to materialize. The Old Testament emphasizes this a number of places that those who have put their trust in the Lord, they will be vindicated or justified rather than ashamed. Consider Psalm 25, verses 1 through 3. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Or Psalm 97, verse 7. Here you're reminded that even though the wicked and the idolatrous seem to be doing well and they seem to be being prospering, they have no shame in their evil. One day they will be ashamed. 97, 7 says, All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. And so there's this idea that one day those will be ashamed. Turn to Psalm 22 for a minute, if you would. I'm sorry, this microphone is just driving me nuts. 
And maybe it's driving you nuts too. There. Psalm 22. Look at verses 4 and 5. This is David writing. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. David here is recounting the history of the nation of Israel, right? He's talking about the fathers, the forefathers, right? Think about uh, Moses, Abraham, Jacob. And he's saying, my, the generations before me that trusted in the Lord, they trusted you and, and their hope, their hope of uh, confident expectation of future good came true. They were not ashamed. And so David is saying, Lord, I know that you are faithful to them, that your promises to them came true, so I know the same thing will happen to me as well. That's what he's doing here in Psalm 22, right? He's, decry- he's crying out, Lord, I know you're going to be faithful to me, and I will not be put to shame. But you know what else is really, and this struck me this week, you know what's fascinating about Psalm 22 in this passage? Look at verse 1. Who spoke these words other than David? Jesus. Psalm 22, we would consider it a messianic psalm, or really it's typological of Jesus' life. It patterns his entire life. And and you can read through it if you look later on, like at verse uh, 14 and following, right? It it pictures the entire process, the suffering of Jesus' life, from his earthly suffering to his death to his resurrection and his ascension into glory. And so on verse 1, Jesus cries this out on the cross, right? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? So before David speaks these words, these are actually Jesus' words. So think about this. In Psalm 22 is Jesus' words, and Jesus is crying out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is also crying out verses 4 and 5 as well. You could say then, Jesus is on the cross dying, and he's crying out with hope with a confident expectation of future good that will come through his death. Future good will come to him. Think about this. Future good is going to come to the one who at the moment he's feeling forsaken by God, but yet he knows future good is coming. He is bearing the weight of all of his people's sin. He is experiencing the father turning his back on him that loss of fellowship and communion. And yet he says, I will not be put to shame. I will receive this future expectation of good to come to me. Psalm 1610 is another messianic psalm, right? And there, Jesus is saying that he will not be put to shame. His soul will not be abandoned to shale. He will share the glory that he and the Father have shared before the world existed, right? That's John 17. That's what Jesus is praying, right? There's a hope, a confident expectation of future good. He is confident that he will not be put to shame, but rather all things will be subjected to him one day, as Hebrews chapter 2 talks about. He has now and one day will receive his bride, the people he has purchased for his own possession, purchased by his blood. And of course, we know that all of this comes to pass because Jesus rises from the dead and is now ascended, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And so think about this. Jesus' hope did not leave him to shame. 
It did not leave him disappointed. So therefore, your hope in his promises will not leave you to shame. Right? You are, this is the beauty of the doctrine of union with Christ. You are united to Christ. You are in him. So therefore, when Jesus says, I've not been put to shame, you're in him. You're his people. You won't be put to shame either. You will not be disgraced. Paul in Romans 9 verse 33, and also he says, quotes part of it in chapter 10 and verse 11, he reiterates this point that those who are trusting in the gospel, they will not be disappointed. And here he's quoting from Isaiah 28, verse 16, but Paul says, behold, actually this is Isaiah, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Paul and Isaiah are both making this point that that, that that stone, right, which is Jesus, whoever looks to him, they won't stumble over him. They're trusting in him. They will not be put to shame. Those who are believing in him. Look at Philippians chapter one just for a moment. Paul evidences this very truth in his life. This struck me this morning as I was thinking about this. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, and you're going to jump in the middle of verse 18, or in my Bible, you have that heading, to live as Christ. And he says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. What's Paul saying here about hope, and shame. He's saying that no matter what happens to him, whether what he is going through, the suffering he's experiencing, whether it kills him or not, he will not be ashamed. He will not be disappointed or discouraged by what's coming to him. He's eagerly expecting it. Notice as well, this hope is fuel for living courageously now. Right? He says, with full courage now, As always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. Think about this. Hope sustains God-glorifying risk, right? Not necessarily like the risk of skydiving or bungee jumping or something like that, but the risk to say, I'm willing to go to the most difficult place in the world and die for the sake of the gospel. Why? Why would Paul say that? Why why do millions of Christians throughout history say that? Why are they willing to go to places like that? And it's because of hope, right? The hope of the glory of God, which sustains us and pushes us forward now. And then notice this as well. The demonstration of hope in Paul's life and the demonstration of hope in your life, that evidence, what does it do? It magnifies Christ. Our confident expectation of future good exalts not our ability to have a strong faith, but magnifies the object of our hope, Jesus Christ. So hope does not put us to shame. Okay, well then, as I always do, I always ask questions. Well, how do I know that to be true, Paul? Well, he gives us an answer, right? Second half of verse five. Right? He's going to move to show why you will not be disappointed by glory or get to glory, that your hope will not leave you abandoned. He says, God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. 
right? God's love has been given to us. Or as we're going to see here in a minute, God's love is felt. We feel this. Now, notice that this pouring out of the love of God is not limited to a special few, right? It's not like there's average Christians and then those who have the love of God poured into their hearts, right? He's already put this all under the heading of those who have been justified by faith. All who are in Christ, who have been justified by faith, have the love of God poured into their hearts. The other thing that you need to know is this idea of has been, right? It's in the past tense in our Bibles, but in the Greek, it's actually in this tense called the perfect tense, which is a past tense with ongoing implications, right? So it has been, and it still is continuing on, continues to be poured into our hearts. And then think about this imagery, even of being poured. If you have a glass and you're pouring something into it, what does it tell you usually about the glass? It's empty, right? It doesn't have anything in it, right? So this is our hearts. An empty vessel is to be filled up. (coughs) Jeremiah chapter two, right? He describes the hearts of the nation of Israel, but really all of us. when he says, my people have committed two evils, they have forsaken me, this is the Lord speaking, the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water, right? Our hearts are like those cisterns, right? We go out and we think we know what will satisfy us, what we'll love and what we'll enjoy. And so we dig out vessels to hold them, but they can't contain it if we fill it up and it just keeps emptying out. And so we go and try and fill it up with something else, but it doesn't ever satisfy, right? You're familiar with the country song? I should sing it, but I won't. Looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking for love in too many faces. Searching their eyes, looking for traces of what I'm dreaming of. It's catchy. It's going to be stuck in your head now the rest of the day. I'm sorry for that. (laughs) But it's into these empty, broken vessels that God pours his love by his spirit. And he pours his love not in a limited fashion. It's not like it's a small trickle or it pours and then it stops. But the idea of pouring is that it's extravagant. It's abundant. It's like a a cup that's being poured into and the pouring never stops and just keeps going over and over and over. Pretty soon you're drowning in the love of God. This present reality of knowing God's love by the Holy Spirit is why our hope will not disappoint us in the future. And at the same time, the hope of future glory will not put us to shame right now, right? As we experience suffering, which is all the heading that this is under. And basically, here's the question that comes to my mind. How is it that you can keep on confidently expecting something good in the future when all you seem to experience now is disappointment, right? All you experience is heartache and letdown. Basically, what keeps you believing? What keeps you understanding that the love of God has been poured into your hearts through the Holy Spirit. And it is this. First, it's this experience of knowing and feeling the love of God poured into your hearts by the Spirit. Paul is here addressing, I think, something that is almost more subjective and experiential. What does it feel like to have the love of God poured out into your hearts? And the reason I say that is because there are times when we don't feel as if God loves us, right? We talked the other night in the the cancer group, we talked about lament, 
And one of the points of lament is you don't feel like God loves you. You feel abandoned. And so lament is giving us language to cry out to God in those times because the reality of life is difficult. A person in lament is crying out, where are you, Lord? Have you forgotten me? And do you love me? At other times, we can feel a sense of God's love that's full and rich and deep. So does God's love change? Of course it doesn't change. It does not diminish the fact that he's described it here, this, this idea behind the pouring is that it's extravagant and abundant and never ceasing would indicate that it never changes. And then you figure, look at how he, the means by which the love of God is poured into your heart, it's by the Holy Spirit or through the Holy Spirit. What do we know about him? Well, Ephesians 1 tells us that he is the sign and the seal of our salvation, right? He will not take the Spirit from us. So the Spirit, you can't lose Him. You can't lose what He's continually doing and pouring out the love of God into your heart. Yet the human experience, the Christian experience, is there are times where God feels distant. We don't think He loves us. I love uh, William Cooper's hymn, uh, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. And he has that line, Behind a frowning providence there, smiles, uh, there, there hides a smiling face. Behind a frown, the, the providence is there, but yet it's frowning, it appears. So what do we do when we don't feel the love of God? Well, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, starting verse 6, look at the cross. If you can't feel the love of God, you can see it. So that's what he's going to move to do. So in verse, verses 6 through 8, we see God's love further detailed, or God's love is seen. You see, seeing God's love helps us understand that we truly have what he says has been given to us, right? And when he says you've been given the love of God or you have the love of God, it's poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit and you say, I don't feel it. He says, well, look at this. This will prove my point. Notice in verse eight, right? Romans 5, 8, very familiar passage of scripture. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're going to notice how this connects to verse 5. Paul is telling us that God shows or demonstrates his love for us. So we need to, again, ask some questions about this love. Okay, Paul, you say I have this. I don't always feel like it. Then you said God shows it. Well, how has he shown this love to us? We want to understand this so we can see what we don't always feel. First of all, a couple of questions to ask from verse 6 and 8. Who did the love of God come to? Notice the phrase, for us. Okay? And then we need to think about, okay, okay, he says it's for us. Well, who's the us? Well, he describes us in three terms. Weak, ungodly, and sinners in verses 6 and 8. Weak means powerless. And in the context of our salvation, it means unable to do anything to go to God, right? We are weak. We are powerless to do anything about our desperate condition before God. Ungodly. We want to think about this in the context of Romans chapter one, right? There he's describing ungodly people. What does he say about them? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Right? He says, ungodly people are idolatrous. They're exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images. 
And then at the end of chapter one, right, he says, ungodly people love sin and they love to encourage others to participate in it with them in the same forms of evil. And then, of course, sinners, sin is that idea of missing the mark, right? We talk about that in Romans 6, 23. Wages of sin is death. Sin is, here's the target and I've missed it. It's failing to meet God's perfect and righteous standard. That's why every week we read God's law, his commands, right? This is, the, this is the standard. And then we go, I have not met that standard. So what do I do? I need to go to Christ. So who did the, God, who did the love of God come to? Well, it came to us. And it's not a pretty picture. Weak, ungodly, and sinners. But the wonder of what Paul is saying here in these verses is that we see the love of God shown or demonstrated to us in spite of all this. This is who we are, and yet God shows his love for us. So you think, okay, that's, that's nice. God saves me out of that condition, but what about now? I still deal with these things. So that's where you have two words in verse 6 and verse 8. He uses the word still twice. While we were still weak, while we were still sinners, in verse 6, the, the idea behind that is that it was before I could do anything to go to God, right? This is what, Paul, what John says in, in 1 John, right? We love him because he first loved us. I'm still a sinner. I can't go to God. I'm weak, and God reaches in and saves me. But then in verse 8, this, the idea behind still there has this element of an ongoing condition because you go... I'm still weak. I'm still ungodly and I'm still a sinner. Does Jesus still love me? Does God's love for me, has it changed? No. If God moves toward me when I am incapable, powerless, weak, and ungodly, Christ dies for me. And even after having his righteousness credited to my account, I'm still in this flesh. I still deal with sin. I'm still weak and ungodly. And then God says, I still love you. While you're still in this fleshly condition, I still love you. How then can I doubt it? How can I doubt his love for me? This is who the love of God is for. Then notice something else in verse 6. Okay, we ask, who did it come to? Well, us. But when did it come? And he says, at the right time. Now, there's quite a bit of debate amongst scholars as to what this means at the right time. And all of them have come to the consensus that they don't know, which is so helpful, right? When you're trying to preach a sermon, you're like, I don't know what that means. I got to find somebody else who does. And they're like, we don't know. It could mean this, that, or the other. Well, thanks a lot. What was all that work for? Uh, but what we do know is we think about the, the times and the plan of God. Think about the fact that God has an exact time for everything, right? Nothing happens outside of his decreed will. I love in the Gospel of John, there are numerous times where Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And my favorite one is in John chapter 2 with the story of the, the water being turned to wine. Jesus' mo- mother comes to him and says, uh, the, the, there's this disaster. They've run out of wine. Do something about it. Jesus says, woman, my hour has not yet come. And then literally minutes later, my hour has come. Right? There's an exact time for God's plan to be fulfilled. Think about Galatians chapter 4 and verses 4 and 5. 
When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. When Paul says, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, he's telling us that all of the times and seasons are in God's hands. So when we think about the context of hope, and hope not putting us to shame, right? we understand every moment of our lives is entrusted to God. We have a hope because of this reality. At the right time, Christ died. At the right time, everything happens according to God's decree. There are no accidents, no coincidences, no chance in the purpose of God. And look at verse 7. Here's the, the next question that we want to ask. We ask, who is the love of God for? When did the love of God come to us? In verse 7, the question is, how unusual is this kind of love. And so he illustrates the point he, he's making in verse 6 with this illustration in verse 7 when he says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Here's, the, here's kind of the point. Humans are averse to dying for one another, right? Even the best of people we are averse to dying for, right? And Jesus says in John 15, right, that the greatest act of love is to lay down one's life for his friends. Of course, there are instances in our world where one person gives his life to save another. I think you, you think of this often in, in the context of the military and a battlefield, right, that a, a soldier will jump on a grenade in order to save the life of other soldiers, right? Or a parent will die for a child, right? An accident or something, the parent will be found covering the child and saving them from whatever would have killed the child. So there are instances like this, and we could just think, though, the person that gives his life for another, they die, and they stay dead, and they don't do, they're not able to save the life forever of the other child, right? This is the difference between Jesus laying down his life and us. But what Paul is doing is he's, he's describing two people here. And he's moving from the lesser to the greater chance, right? So this first man is this just man who also could be considered righteous or blameless. And this I'm thinking, he's talking about this in just their outward character, right? Like that's a, a righteous person, right? They obey the law. But then he qualifies it and he says, but a good person. Now the good person is one who is loved or they're a benevolent person, right? You've received something from them. He says, we would be more inclined to die for that person than just for the person who is objectively right. This good person, this one whom you may have received something from, who you love, right? You would be more likely to die for them than the person you have no relationship with. So this illustration, what it's doing is it's showing the wonder of what God has done for us right? We're very limited in who we would die for. And when Jesus comes and dies, who does he die for? His friends, the ones who loved him, the benevolent ones. No, he dies for his enemies, right? We have a hard time laying down our lives for someone we love, someone who has loved us, but God loved us while we hated him. Jesus dies for those who hated him. So this is an unusual kind of love from the human perspective. 
And then we have to ask in verses 6 and 8, how did the love of God come to us? And this is very simple. We've looked at this already, but it's simply this. Christ died for us. The love of God comes to us because Christ dies for us. The love of God does not come to anyone apart from the death of Christ on their behalf. Right? You don't have the Holy Spirit pouring the love of God into your hearts if Christ has not died for you. Right? That word for is very important because it implies substitution in the place of. Christ died in your place. We are those weak, ungodly, and sinners. Now we are, as verse 1, chapter 5 says, we are the ones who have been justified. Right? We are the ones who Christ died for. And we're justified, going back to 4.24 and 4.25, because we've believed in Jesus. And why did that happen? We well, go all the way back to John chapter 10 and the wonderful story of Jesus as the good shepherd. But there, Jesus, we, we believed in Jesus because the Father has given us to the Son. You see, it's no accident, it's no coincidence that Jesus died for sinners and you happen to be a sinner who happened to believe in him. No, Jesus died for you. He substituted his righteousness for your unrighteousness, for your sin, for your ungodliness, and for your weakness. There is a specificity here to the death of Christ. There's a personalness to the death of Christ. This is not a general substitution. This is specific. How did the love of God come to us? It's that Christ died for us. So what does this all show, right? This is where we started as we moved into this passage. What does it show? And this is, this is the point of the whole passage. It shows God's love for us, right? If verse five, we would think of as more subjective and experiential in how we feel the love of God being poured into our hearts. And like we said, we don't always feel it. And so God has shown it to us so that when we don't feel it, what do we do? We can see it. We can look to the truth of the gospel, the objective historical facts of the gospel, the life of Jesus. We can see these things take place. We're told what they mean. And then we go, it has to be true. The love of God has to be poured into my heart through the Holy Spirit, even though I don't feel like it. The objective historical facts of the gospel are that Christ died on the cross for sins, that he was buried, and the third day he rose again, that he has ascended into heaven where he now sits at the Father's right hand, and one day he will return to take me to glory. All right, this passage, especially the difference between verses 6 and 8 and verse 7, is drawing this just stark contrast between what humans are disposed to do, not dying for one another, and what God has done for us. Right? We say it is a great demonstration of love when one gives himself for another, but how much more when one dies for his enemies? Not only that, it's not that Jesus just died for his enemies, but there was really no need for him to do that. He chooses to die to pour his love into us freely and spontaneously, right? without motivation other than it brings him glory. Right, we add nothing to God. It's not that, that his pouring his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit adds anything to God. He doesn't gain anything by saving us. It simply brings him good pleasure. Right? God is pleased to show mercy to those who don't even see their need for mercy. 
You see, Christ's death in the place of and for us shows how extravagant, how far-reaching, never to leave us the love of God is. So when you can't feel the love of God, what do you do? You see it. You look at it. It's displayed. You know, I think it's in, I should never go off my notes, but I am just for a second. It's in Ephesians chapter 3. In verse 9 and 10. Paul is saying, his argument here is that what God has done in chapter 2, where he's talking about the new creation of the church, what God has done in the church, he says, this is displaying to all the spiritual realm the wonders of what Christ has done. Look at verse 9. To bring to light for everyone... What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Right? There's, there's this spiritual realm that is the, the death of Christ for those who hate him is displaying this is miraculous. Just as the church, when we function as we should. We're displaying God, God's reconciling of us to him is displaying to the whole created realm the wonder of God's love. So when you can't feel the love of God, look to the cross and see it displayed. I just want to close now with a couple of, of applications from this. So you come to a passage like this And what I think we're meant to do in large part is simply to bask in the love that God has for us. Now, Jess and I have talked about this before, but sometimes, sometimes we get apprehensive about talking about the love of God. I do sometimes, right? Because I know that That's not true for everyone, right? God doesn't love everyone. Jess mentioned this a few weeks ago, right? Many people are under the wrath of God. But yet for us, oh man, we are under the love of God, right? God loves us and we can just simply bask in that and go, that's really, really, really good news. I need to enjoy that, to delight in that. And when I see passages like this, I see that God wants us to know that and to love him for his love for us. He wants us to feel and experience the love of God being poured into our hearts by the Spirit. So first thing, we, it's okay and it's good and maybe you're not like me, but for me, I need to grow in simply basking in the love of God for me. And then I want to reiterate this point that I made earlier. What do I do when I feel disappointed, when I feel discouraged and I don't feel the love of God, but yet I've been promised that it's mine, okay? So see how God has shown his love in the gospel. Return to passages like this and read and rejoice and go, Lord, I don't feel this right now, but make it true in my heart. Ask the Lord to help you feel and know that his love has been and is being poured into your heart. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says that one of the works of the Spirit is that the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God, right? So we can go, Holy Spirit of God, testify to my heart, make true to my heart that this is true of me. Help me to feel that. 
Help me to know that, to impress that upon your heart. Sometimes, and again, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm talking to myself here and you all can just tune out for a second. No, don't do that. Um, but sometimes in our, in our conservative theological circles, we get really uncomfortable with emotions and the emotions of responding to the word of God, emotion in the church context, whatever it may be. And we look at other churches that are driven by emotionalism and we say, that is rightly, that's wrong. Right? You're not pursuing emotions just for the end in themselves. But I think after looking at passages like this, so many other places in the scriptures, God wants us to feel this. Right? And so I'm confident that when we dig into passages like Romans 5, 6 through 8, or anywhere in the scripture, right? When we look at what God has shown, the extravagant nature of his love that defies human comprehension, our emotions have to be changed in some way. You can't not like really get into the word of God and be like, oh, okay, that's cool. You know, like I, I, there, there's an element that, that is to be accompanying this. Now, I don't want to be, you know, pa- certain pastors have hobby horses. The pastor that's preaching about Genesis 1 and then at the end of the sermon. Now, a word about baptism, if you've ever heard that story. Okay, that fell flat really bad. <laughs> The point is this. I don't want to be the pastor that makes the same application every time, right? I'm the music pastor, so the application of every sermon, hey guys, let's sing now, right? right that, that's not the point. But there is this element that when we consider feeling the love of God and we see that there are emotions that accompany truth, singing is something that helps us feel that. Right? I heard Bob Coughlin describe it this way this, on, a, on a podcast. Some of you listen to it. But he said, singing enables us to feel the truth right? So you go like, oh man, I don't feel the love of God. Well, how about you sing about it, right? That, that's the beauty of, of music, right? Is that it connects truth with what emotion is. It's emotional or with what music is. It's emotional, okay? So here's my practical pastoral application for times you don't feel the love of God. Ask the Spirit to bear witness with your spirit that God loves you. Go read Romans 5, 6 through 8, or better yet, memorize it. Go back to the gospel, recount the historical objective truth of this and what God's word says about it. Listen and sing to really good music that reminds you of these truths, scripturally rooted, theologically rich, musically fitting to those truths. And then finally, what if you've never felt this? What if this seems a bit foreign? Here's my my concern, so understand what what I'm saying here. I don't want to put in anyone's mind this morning that the assurance of their salvation comes from what they feel or what they've experienced. Please, don't walk out of here thinking that. That's not the point. But if you've never felt any love for God, if you've never felt any love of Him, if your heart is not moved by the fact that you're a massive sinner, helpless, weak, unable to save yourself, you're an enemy, and God comes and gives His love to you through the sacrificial work of Christ on the cross, if that doesn't stir your heart in some degree, then you got to check it. It might be dead. Dead hearts are not stirred by these things because they're dead, right? So cry out to the Lord and ask him to help you see the love God has for sinners. Confess your weakness, your ungodliness, your missing the mark. 
cry out in faith and say, Lord, my only confident hope of future good is Jesus. I know I have nothing good apart from him, so save me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are thankful that you love us in spite of what we once were and even now as we continue to live in the flesh and sin and we are all still weak and ungodly and sinners, yet you have lavished your love, never ceases. Lord, apply that to our hearts today. Make this real in our hearts and lives. We're so thankful that we can have a confident expectation of future good, the future good of glory, because you have demonstrated your love in this way. So we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.